Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I want to talk about centering prayer and why our souls need silence. You can check out my own story and backdrop to Centering Prayer back in episode eight, and you can, and there'll be also other episodes that I've done on Centering Prayer in this podcast in the show notes. I have a book coming out in fall of 2021 in September called Centering Prayer, How Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. If you're interested in receiving information about it, it's publication, and also getting some bonuses, check out centeringprayerbook.com. And so let's jump right into the episode, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the impact that contemplative practices, in particular centering prayer, had on me in some of the most difficult parts of my life. Now, those who know me, I'm a long-term practitioner of centering prayer now. I've been doing it for a handful of years, and I do it every single day, and sometimes I do it more than once a day. And I'm not saying that to boast in any way, but just to tell you about the level of investment that I have. And I can guarantee you, if you learn to practice centering prayer and you play long game with it, this isn't a quick fix, you'll notice profound benefits as you sit literally in God's presence quietly. I want to start with a quotation from Edward Schilbeck. He wrote, in a revealed religion since in a revealed religion, silence with God has a value in itself and for its own sake. Just because God is God, failure to recognize the value of mere being with God as the beloved without doing anything is to gouge the heart out of Christianity. I love that quotation, especially the part about the value of mere being with God as God's beloved. One of the most powerful experiences that I've had in my own contemplative practices and in, in sitting quietly in God's presence has been at different moments that profound experience of divine love uh, that Tillich talks about accepting the fact that you're unconditionally accepted or as maybe uh, Maxie Dunham's famous for saying that prayer Lord, help me believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. And the truth is that we're the objects of God's love, period, apart from anything that we do, just simply we're, we're God's beloved. And so my goal in this chapter is to reflect on why our souls need silence and solitude. I wrote this in my own spiritual journey, and I share my story not to say that I'm a paradigm or even a complete role model in all this. But what I hope through sharing something of my own journey is that my experience can help you to ask some different types of questions of your faith journey. And I hope that those questions will spur a deeper growth in the love of God in your life. So let me start with a question. Have you ever found yourself attempting to navigate a new area with an old map? or with an old, outdated GPS system, not the ones found on our phones, they always update. But if you had one of those original GPS systems, you could have one, you'd have to update it occasionally. Have you ever tried to navigate with either an old map or an old GPS system? If you've if you ever done that, you'll know the feeling of being in a strange place and realizing that the map that you have at your disposal, it's missing key features and you literally have no idea where you're at. Well, for me, 
silence and solitude practices, in particular centering prayer, though I also do um, regular journaling practices. Those, those are new maps for my spiritual gra- growth. But before I talk about why I have a new map, let me share with you my old map. Because maps are great for getting around until they aren't. But the hard thing is you only discover the inadequacy of your map when you find yourself off-grid or in unfamiliar territory. And that's what happens when you're, the map that you have, the map that you use to live your life through, doesn't match up with the terrain that you find yourself in in the moment. And I've noticed in my life that whenever my map's not matching a terrain, that's usually at exactly the most challenging and inconvenient times. My experience of divorce after 20 years, and that's now all that's over 10 years ago for me now, but that, that experience can only be described as I look back and I, I just remember the pain of those, those early days. It was a, an inward searing of my soul. It rocked my previous belief structure to the very core because I couldn't make intellectual, emotional, or spiritual sense of any of it. And for weeks, I was reduced literally to basically an anxiety-ridden insomniac. And my previous faith commitments almost seemed like a foreign country. The spiritual maps that I had at my disposal, they had lots of intellectual answers. But those answers in that dark time didn't penetrate the pain that I was actually feeling in my soul. And now as I look back over a decade ago now, it's a decade later, I've never actually returned to that map that I used to use. I've never returned to the land I once inhabited, but I'm also, I'm no longer off grid. My faith in my life, they've expanded in unexpected ways. I mean, you're seeing that manifest. If you've been listening to this podcast, if you watch my videos on YouTube, my spiritual life's become richer and deeper. I'm now grateful, actually. I'm actually grateful for that period of personal purgatory that was caused by the dissolution of my first marriage. But you know what's been the difference maker for me when I look back? Again, I'm a professor of biblical studies, so I, I, I read the Bible for a living. I, I teach. Uh, you know, I've, I've grew up in church, so I had all those pieces So I even had those when I was going through all that, and that was what was so kind of terrifying at a faith level for me because the things that I had, uh, they weren't having any effect on the pain that I felt. But that's when I found the silence. It's been my embrace of the habits of silence and solitude that have made all the difference. My daily practice of centering prayer constitutes the core of these practices, and centering prayers helped me to find a new map that filled in all of the details, all the border areas that my previous maps left uncharted. If you go back to episode eight, I actually share a really powerful moment of my first experience of contemplation. It was right, it was right in the middle of the, the worst parts of, uh, of going through the divorce process. And I literally had this moment where everything just stopped and I was still, and I knew that God was enough. So when I look back, it wasn't so much that I found silence and solitude as much as they found me. 
and it was a gift that served as an anchor when I was slipping, and it's been a trustworthy guide for growing in the love of God, neighbor, and self. Uh, my anxiety-driven brain, my insomnia, just kept my brain just kept looping and grasping for answers, just spinning around, working through different scenarios, oftentimes catastrophizing things. But my experience of peace in that moment of contemplation interrupted my thoughts and taught me to cr- a critical lesson, and that lesson is this. My undisciplined mind was actually an impediment to my growth in God's love and in God's grace. And I say undisciplined simply for this reason. I don't want to avoid I want to avoid sounding anti-intellectual and anti-rational because I'm not. I'm a professor. I'm very rational. I probably overthink, but I would say it was, I had an undisciplined mind. And in fact, you know, I think enough that these very words that I'm putting into this podcast now are the are part of are the product of deep reflection about how to present and talk about centering prayer in a way that I hope is going to be helpful for you all who are listening right now. But the truth is this: what's an undisciplined mind? The truth is that our minds run nonstop. And one of the most profound steps on a journey to an even deeper communion with God occurs in those moments where we recognize the, to the, the extent to which we're actually lost in our thoughts. But then it's always interesting. As soon as you can actually kind of recognize that you're lost in thoughts, you get this interesting idea like, okay, who's, if I can see that I'm lost in a thought, who's actually doing the thinking? And that's a powerful truth because there's the reality, friends. We're not just our thoughts. In fact, the scriptures tell us, take every thought captive. That's what Paul says in the Corinthians letters. And I also have to say, it seems true that we don't have that much control, actually, of the stray thoughts that come into our minds. I mean, sometimes we're hearing the voices of our parents, uh, the voices of a teacher, the voices of a a bully or something that said something that was painful, the thoughts, they come from all over the place. So we don't always have control. We're flesh and blood, flesh and bones persons. We have, we're filled with DNA inherited from our ancestors. The Bible tells us back in Genesis that we're all forged in God's image. And there's different ways to think about what it means to be in God's image, but the one, the way that I like to talk about that is it's the it's the blending of the physical and the spiritual. And I like to say, think that of of us as human beings as we're embodied souls. And so the thoughts that go through our head, that's just simply one aspect of the way that we experience life. But even more importantly than just recognizing that we're not simply our thoughts, I think even more profoundly is this, God, God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God is more than and greater than any thought or feeling that we can ponder or experience. And reflecting on the beauty of God through our traditions, through reading theology, uh, pondering and reflecting on the scripture, that stuff just merely scratches the surface of the infinite nature of God. Think about it. God is richer, deeper, bigger, more infinite than our orthodox theology uh, that we use to talk about God can actually sustain. It's interesting, if you go back into the medieval period, St. Anselm, he has that fascinating and almost perplexing reflection on the existence of God in his prologium. And 
St. Anselm described God as that which nothing greater can be conceived. So the idea is if you can conceive of an idea that's, um, uh, that nothing greater can be conceived, that's what God would be. But, so what's Anselm trying to say? By describing God as that which nothing greater can be conceived, Anselm is thinking and recognizing that the God that we're capable of imagining and understanding in our minds is radically less than the fullness of who God truly is. Okay, I know this sounds a little bit abstract. So why you're saying, why is that so important, Brian? What is that all about? Well, let me just say this. For some people, it may not be. But there's always going to be pilgrims, and I suspect some of you who are listening to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast are the type of pilgrims who are longing for something more tangible than just theology, um, more tangible than descriptions or depictions of God. You know, persons that I'm talking about are longing for a deep relationship with God, one that penetrates not just our minds, but our hearts, our feelings, our physical bodies even. Paul wrote about that in Philippians 3, 9, and 10. He said, he wanted to be, I want to be found in Christ in order to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. In 3, 8 in Philippians, Paul had equated the ultimate gain in life, what he had called the surpassing greatness. What was the surpassing greatness? It was this, knowing Christ. And that's not merely a knowledge that one gains through textbooks or the study of theology. And again, we're not denigrating any of those things. Those are core parts of, of the Christ following movement. But we're just recognizing that there's a deeper intimacy available that transcends even our greatest, deepest, most beautiful thoughts and feelings about God. There's something more. And so how, how do we as finite persons relate to the infinite? It's going to be at the level of our souls or our spirits. That's why I call my book, Centering Prayer, how sitting quietly in God's presence can change your life. It's we're sitting there with our souls open, our spirits open, our intentions to sit quietly with the God who loves us. Paul hints at that kind of stuff in Romans 8. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. That's verse 26. These experiences that Paul's describing, they don't just happen in the world of thoughts, ideas, and feelings. Such encounters with the divine, that way that Paul's talking about, occur beyond the noise of our common life. And we normally can enter these rich veins of spiritual awakening only in the intentional practices of silence and solitude. These are those liminal spaces where our very beings can encounter God's spirit. What's fascinating is secular persons even recognize something as the Jungian analyst it's one of my favorite authors, James Hollis. He recommends sitting in solitude and silence as a vital practice for engaging your truest self. For Hollis, solitude is a means of confronting the inner noise and chatter that distracts us and hinders us from wholeness. He writes of, of the need for a regular practice, quote, so some part of every day, it is good to risk radical presence to oneself, to follow a quiet ritual of disengagement from the traffic out there and the traffic in here. When the silence speaks, one has gained companionship with oneself, moved from loneliness to solitude, 
a necessary prerequisite to individuation. According to Hollis, solitude is a path for integrated or lived persona, that false self, that person that we had to become when we were younger to make it through the world. You know, our false self, it's, it's, it's who we had to be to get the love that we needed. It's who we need to be to get the affirmation that we long for. But that false self always has that shadow sitting under that. And the shadow isn't just some dark or bad part of ourselves. Yeah, it could be. That could be where the bad girl or bad guy lives inside of us. But there's much more. Uh, you know, all of us have a shadow that essentially reflects our public image. And it usually shows up in our, when no one else is watching or when we find ourselves with people who we really trust. But again, all of us in some ways have had to suppress certain parts of ourself in order to fit in. And you can look back, maybe you liked art when you were growing up or music, but your parents said, no, you need to study math, you need to study science. Or you had to give up something because you had to work. There's always something that causes us to suppress some part of ourselves. And as we mature, we left parts of ourselves in the past so that we wouldn't lose love or the approval of our mother, the approval of our father. And so Hollis suggests that solitude is a vehicle for discovering the true self. And solitude and silence work because it's a way of affirming that our healing cannot depend on another person or thing. The cure for deep loneliness of the soul is solitude rather than the pursuit of distracting relationships. Now, let me stop there just for a second, because again, Hollis is writing from a secular perspective, and one of the things that he misses is we're not just talking when we do centering prayer, being silent by ourselves as, a, as though nothing's there. This is where the, where the game changer comes in with centering prayer, because as Christians, we recognize that only God can truly save us. It's God's sanctifying grace through the work of the Spirit that's the means of experiencing wholeness and approaching an integrated true self. And so when we sit in silence with God, we're not just there confronting ourselves. And instead, we're opening ourselves up to God who can see all of us anyway. And what I found over time, again, this doesn't happen every single time. There's never, there's never a magic bullet. You, you want to practice centering prayer every single day for an extended amount of time, and you'll find some really game-changing, long-term benefits. But one of the things that marks is the practice of sitting in silence with God. That signals to God our complete dependence on God because we're just sitting in silence. We're not reading something. We're not trying to pray with words. We're not singing songs. We're not writing theology. We're sitting in silence with God and surrendering our thoughts as they come up to God. So that signals our dependence on God alone for deep healing. And of course, there's a place for community in the Christian life. So don't hear this as an anti-community thing, just in case you're wondering about that. But silence is powerful on its own. Martin Luther once said, everyone has to do their own believing just as everyone has to do their own dying. You know, no one can practice solitude or silence for us. And the other thing I have to say, and this is interesting, solitude and silence can be frightening. It's because we get confronted. We get confronted with the truth of who we are. And that can be scary in some ways. We'll talk about that in other episodes. But and it can also, again, be life-giving as you feel God's love. Nietzsche, another secular philosopher, he wrote... When we are alone and quiet, 
We are afraid that something will be whispered in our ear, and so we hate the silence and drug ourselves with social life. Again, Hollis and Nietzsche, they both wrote from a secular perspective, yet note the high value that both of these scholars placed on solitude and silence. As Christians, we do not engage the silence merely to be alone. Again, I'm going to repeat that. We don't engage the silence as a means to be alone. We engage the silence in order to be alone with God. And that's the key distinction. Centering prayer runs much deeper than any silence or solitude or Eastern meditation practices that just focuses on the self. If you practice centering prayer, I can assure you, you will gain deep insights into yourself. But that's a fruit of the practice rather than the purpose. The intent of, of Christian silence, of Christian meditative prayer, centering prayer is to present our true self fully, openly, unabashedly to God, to the God who loves us. And a fruit of centering prayer is that over time, spent in silence, we're going to confront both our fellow self and our shadow, and we'll talk about in a later episode. And the intimacy of silence with God will be touched with the fullness of, of God's love, and that's transformational. Our true self, the person whom God created us to be, begins to reemerge out of our times of communion with God. This is part of the deep healing that God works in our souls, in the silence. And in doing so, we will grow in our love for God, for neighbor, and for ourselves. And then we may offer our true integrated self fully in service to God. All this isn't an easy process necessarily. You know, struggling with the false self and our shadow, sitting in silence. You're going, to be, get, you're going to get to confront our inner demons. And I'm not suggesting by inner demons literal combat with otherworldly forces. Instead, what we get confronted with are those parts of ourselves that we'd otherwise ignore or repress. Sometimes they can be frightening aspects. Sometimes they can be painful. And, that's, and here's the whole thing. Again, I challenge everybody listening to try out centering prayer, to sit in silence. But how many of us really desire to know the deep recesses of our soul? How many of, how many of us really want to know the, the hurt, painful parts of ourselves that God loves too? You know, Solzhenitsyn, one of my favorite authors in his Gulag Archipelago, he has that kind of haunting line. He says, the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. Yet growth in grace not only reveals our deepest self, but offers us the truth of God's love for even the darkest parts and the most painful memories. Centering prayer is an intentional practice of silence and solitude. It serves as a vehicle for surrendering our need to focus on our thoughts. Instead, we turn away from them in order to be present in silence before the God who loves us. In centering prayer, we do not give attention, give our attention to our thoughts, that's critical, no matter how beautiful or ugly they may be. Rather, we express our intention to spend time with God by surrendering. Remember, centering prayer is simply this. You sit in silence. When you become aware that you're in a thought, you don't panic. You don't freak out regardless of what the thought is. You use your centering prayer word, your, your, your prayer word. Like I like to use Jesus as a way of just releasing that thought easily. We resist no thought. We react to no thought. We retain no thought. We gently return to our intention of sitting silent, silently in God's presence, sitting quietly in God's presence. 
So how does God work that way? How does God use the silence? Well, in solitude, we may experience a purifying new type of conversion. Richard Rohr uses the language of moral conversion, but he views it as, a, as broader than just overcoming our vices. Now, that's important, too. But he writes, it's more subtle, a purification of your real motives for doing things, even good things, than the usual desires for personal satisfaction, a need for control personally or socially, or any craving to build up the ego or feel good about yourself. Instead, you shift to the honest perception of value outside yourself. It's profound. Solitude, silence, and stillness are all countermeasures to the endless, repetitive mind loops that may not serve us in our relationship with God, self, or others. Roar continues. I would even say that on a practical level, silence and God will be experienced simultaneously and even as the same thing. When you are in your mind, you're never truly at peace. And when you are truly at peace, you are never in your mind. Roar's not denigrating the intellect any more than I am, but it's profoundly helpful to contemplate deeply the beauty and truth of God through words, images, and sounds, through thought and emotion. We need the language of scripture and theology. We need worship songs. We need hymns of the faith to give voice to our adoration of God. Silence and solitude sit upon the foundation of the faith once delivered to all the saints. We need careful study of scripture and theology. One of my favorite uh, teachers of scripture, Paul Ochtemeyer, the late Paul Ochtemeyer, he used to ask in class, since when is ignorance an asset to ministry? And obviously, ignorance rarely or ever is an asset to ministry or anything else. So learning is critical, but learning has to translate to deep transformation, especially when the subject is the God who loves us. So friends, let's never settle just for learning information. Learning must also serve God's bigger mission of manifesting God's kingdom in the world through love. Lifelong learning, reading, and studying are all critical. The proclamation of the gospel does depend on words, images, and actions. We need well-articulated theology in order to help us grow in grace and communicate the good news about Jesus to others. So to practice centering prayer, it's not staking out an anti-intellectual position. It rests upon the truth of the gospel. The danger of a primarily intellectual approach to faith, however, is equating our thoughts about God with an actual moment-by-moment relationship with God. When we think about God, God becomes an object, essentially, an abstraction that's in our mind. When we're present, though, in God in the deep silence... God is a subject, but God is subject without reducing us to objects either. There's a deep relational communion in which we become lost in God's presence. There's an experience of oneness in our spirit with God. Let me expand on the danger of turning God into an object of study. I mean, you can go all the way back to Genesis 3 and see that. Remember what the serpent asked uh, Eve? Did God really say... And at the heart of that temptation, essentially, was the first conversation about God. Did God really say? Now, if our relationship with God is merely in the realm of ideas, growth and grace can simply involve growing intellect. But we all know that the truth of the gospel may never penetrate us enough if it's just in our heads to break negative patterns, to touch us to the depths of our deepest soul wounds. And too often, the 
teaching and even the spiritual formation is just really about increasing the knowledge of believers, just learning more stuff. Again, I'm a professor. I love learning things. I love teaching things, but I want the truth to penetrate not just into our minds, but in our hearts, our souls, our very being, so that our hand we can become hand, our, God's hands, God's feet, God's mouthpieces, ambassadors of God's abundance. So the mistake we make is we focus too much on the what content rather than on the how, the living the deepest truths out in the content of everyday life. And think about what happens. Who does the heavy lifting? Who does the heavy lifting if uh, uh, formation, Christian discipleship is just about head knowledge? Doesn't it just scholars or at least religious professionals the person who has the time and the middle bandwidth to think, study, teach, and write about God, spirituality, scripture in the world. You know, even this podcast, there's a danger here, right? I'm sharing my learning and my experiences with you about centering prayer. But friends, my goal in this episode isn't just to give you some ideas to ponder the what about silence and solitude and centering prayer. My goal is to empower and inspire you today to start practicing centering prayer, maybe even now, because that's the how, that's what we're looking for. Because when the focus tilts too heavily under the intellect, God may be reduced from the creator of all and the Lord of Lords to a religious system, a denomination, a theological statement, or just some abstraction that's removed from our life. And in such cases, what happens to individual believers? They become dependent on scholars and pastors for completely resourcing their spiritual growth by overfocusing on the intellectual development of believers apart from practice, we can easily raise information and facts onto a pedestal rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the, the brilliance of some scholars can ironically cause ordinary Christians to lose access to the reality of the divine. Uh, Dr. Peter Rollins, who, had on, who I had as a guest a couple of episodes ago, he wrote uh, this. Uh, in this way, Christianity is given over to the scholar who sits at her desk, surrounded on all sides by an endless sea of ink, adding her own tiny drops so as to justify her living. The truth of Christianity is thus given over to those who can dissect it, study it, and reflect upon it. When God becomes an object of study, we risk creating an idol out of our theological reflection. You know, part of the reason that my initial map failed in a moment of crisis was that I'd focused most of my life on viewing faith as an intellectual problem to work out. Again, I still I had feelings and stuff, but it, I saw faith really as an intellectual problem to work out. If I can just read another book, if I can just get the right insight, if I can get the right phrases... If I could just learn how to think and frame challenges and issues theologically, I'd be able to work them out and live faithfully. But it took the deep sense of personal betrayal and shame that I felt for my divorce, as well as the struggle to care for my two young daughters as a single father. I mean, there's just no place on my map. My map couldn't, couldn't do it. You know, I was so hurt for a while that when I attended worship, I couldn't sing. I couldn't sing. I couldn't sing hymns. I couldn't sing praise pray songs. There was a time when I'm around some fine people, great friends, so many pastor friends, I have professor friends, but there was no advice that any of my theological mentors could give me that gave me any comfort. Even reading the scriptures, 
And at that point in my life, I'd been reading the Bible faithfully for 27 years. Even the scriptures didn't salve my wound. Because, friends, I didn't need more information. I just needed God. And thanks be to God that I stumbled into the silence. And when I stumbled into the silence, I found God again. So that's the call of the contemplative life. It's not a, this isn't an attack on deep thinking about our faith. Silence and solitude practices are an overflowing goblet of cool water that's available for any parched pilgrim that might be listening to this right now. Let me return to Anselm again. Anselm's famous saying, faith-seeking understanding, remains a vital one. Contemplative experience needs a good theological reflection to make sense of it, but our reflections about God must never be substitutes for a daily abiding in the presence of the God who loves us. Thomas Keating, who was one of the leaders of the Centering Prayer Movement, modern Centering Prayer Movement, he wrote, we can bring the false self to liturgy and to, to the reception of sacraments, but we cannot bring the false self forever to contemplative prayer because it's the nature of contemplative prayer to dissolve it. What God desires is our growth in love in response to, to the divine love poured out into our lives, like Paul wrote about in Romans 5.5. 5. This love overflows into love back to God for others and even for ourselves. In times of solitude, divine love can penetrate even the darkest recesses of our souls. In the words of Teilhard de Chardin, great quote, to lose oneself in the unfathomable, to plunge into the inexhaustible, to find peace in the incorruptible, to give one's deepest to give of one's deepest to him whose depths have no end. Thanks be to God. And friends, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end to this episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm recording this on my birthday. Till next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope to others. If you found this episode really helpful, uh, please share it with your friends. I'd love it if you could leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or if you can add some comments or some likes on the YouTube channel if you're watching the video. If I could be of any service to you, uh, reach out. If you're interested in a, a special program that I curate for pastors and spiritual leaders, you can email me directly at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com or check out uh, landing page at deepdivespirituality.com. Truly grateful to have you as my audience, and I look forward uh, to the next episode.